You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. We sound good this morning. Love to worship with you. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is week three of a sermon series that we've called When I Grow Up. And uh, in this series thus far, we've been challenged to answer the question, what do I want for my children and my grandchildren as they grow up? What is it that you desire most for them? Some would say, well, I want them to enjoy success on their chosen career path. And maybe in preparation for that career path, I want them to enjoy success in all of their educational pursuits. Uh, Maybe that would all ultimately lead to them enjoying financial security. Uh, Some might say right now, well, I'd just be happy if they became a productive part of society and got off my payroll. Um, I understand that. Uh, We've been using a simple illustration over the last few weeks uh, to hopefully give you a visual reminder of how important the time is as it relates to training up our kids. Uh, This jar with these little colorful fuzzy sticks in here represents uh, the hours in a week. There are 168 hours in a week. And I mentioned in that first message, that introductory message, that if the average family counts entirely upon the church to do discipleship for them, the discipleship of their children, then they're really committing just one of those hours to discipleship. And if you have them involved maybe in some kids' ministries like RAs and GAs and that kind of thing, maybe we could move that to, to two hours a week. But our goal through this series of messages is for us to claim more of those hours and commit those times uh, and, and those hours, those moments, to discipleship in the home. That's what this is. The idea in that fraction, that one of 168, is to, is to change the numerator, that top number. Uh, we want to, and then you say, well, well how am I going to do that, Pastor? That means I'm going to have to somehow add more hours to my week. I'm going to have to somehow magically get 178 hours out of a week or something like that. And that's not what I'm suggesting. In fact, what I would say is that it becomes critically important that you seize other hours when you may be doing other things for the purpose of discipleship. And I happen to know that some of you are already doing that. Now, this morning's message is going to help us dive a little bit deeper into the practical aspects, the nuts and bolts of what generational discipleship looks like. In this series, we are looking at the biblical pattern of generational discipleship or discipleship in the home. And so the key text for that is found here in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. I want us to pick it up once again at verse number 4, and we'll read down through verse number 9. It says there, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God speaks of the power of generational discipleship, not only here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but throughout Scripture. This is not just an Old Testament concept. 
Now he began by making his intentions clear, I believe at the time of creation, when he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That command is not limited to just physical procreation. It seems clear that the essence of God's intent there was that uh, Adam and Eve multiply his presence on the earth through children. And we see that generational thread wind its way throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Now, kind of by way of review, bring everyone up to speed, in the first two messages in this series, we looked at the power of generational discipleship and discovered how it can be both for good and for bad. Not everyone is leaving a good godly legacy. And we even see that in Scripture. The power of generational discipleship. We have looked at the priority of generational discipleship. This is not something that will happen by accident. You have to be very intentional in this process. You have to make it a priority. And today we're going to look at the process, or what we might call the practice, of generational discipleship. And so while you may have thought that the first couple of messages were more based in theory, and how we're to think about these things, and how we're to understand them, I believe that God is very practical. And God intends for us to put those things that we know to be true into practice that's why God's word is clear that we're to do that in every area of our lives. It's not enough to just know about God. It's not enough to just know biblical truth. We have to put those truths into practice in our daily lives. And the same thing is true in this area of generational discipleship. The principles of generational discipleship appear consistently throughout scripture for all people and they still apply to us today. I remind you that Jesus himself quoted from the twin pillars of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 here and Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 and in doing so summarized two commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. What Jesus was fundamentally doing there is he was summarizing in those two commands the entirety of the Ten Commandments. Because fundamentally all of those Ten Commandments fall into one of those two categories. How do we relate to God? You shall have no other gods before me. You, you, you shall not make in yourself any graven image relating to our relationship with God. And then many of them talk about how we relate to our fellow man. And so we see that in Jesus' teaching there as he, as he brings about and summarizes these two commands. Now again, the principle of generational discipleship is highlighted by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He had just affirmed uh, Timothy's uh, legacy of faith handed down to him by his grandmother and his mother. And then he says, these things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these two faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so you see there are really four generations. There's Paul, then there's Timothy, and then there are the faithful men to whom Timothy is to entrust the truth or to pass it on to them, and then others also. And so that multi-generational discipleship process should, yes, take place in our families, but I believe we can also see that it is to take place within the church. And so that means that this process applies to all of us. No matter what phase of life you find yourself in this morning, I know I'm so grateful through the years that there have been godly senior adults in the churches where we've served who have served as a godly example to my kids. And while they had godly grandparents, praise the Lord, and still do, 
Um, I'm so grateful that there are those who've come alongside them and challenged them spiritually and have poured into them and have taught them in, in, in Sunday school and in small group settings and in student ministry and, and all of those things. So this is really uh, a church endeavor. And, and one of the things I've wanted to make crystal clear throughout this entire series is that the church has no desire to take this responsibility on for you or to somehow take it from you. Okay, we don't want you to pass it off to us. And so how can we as Christian parents then raise up godly generations? How can, how can godly grandparents impact their grandchildren with spiritual truth? Well, Moses preached Deuteronomy chapter 6 to Israel as they prepared to enter the land of Canaan. You go back and you study this section of scripture in its historical context He knew that they would face many temptations in the land that they were going to possess. They would be surrounded by pagans. That's one of the reasons that he stresses here uh, the importance of worshiping the one true God because he knew that they were going to be in a polytheistic culture. And so he, he stresses that. And so his point here is fundamentally this. It is to raise up godly generations, you must love God fervently. That means love God fervently yourself. Teach your children diligently and live in the world carefully. Live in the world carefully. So let's begin to unpack that concept. I want you to notice, first of all, how important it is that we love God fervently. Now, we touched on this some last week, but I want you to see once again that the most important requirement for generational discipleship is for you to have a a personal reality, uh, a relationship with God. You cannot pass on to your children what you do not possess. So this requires a couple of things. To love God fervently, you must know him through his word. Verse number four again is called the Shema. From the Hebrew, hear, to listen. It's it's akin to us today saying, hey, listen up, listen up. Give attention to this. It's really important. It's like someone who's maybe, maybe been teaching a class and the class has kind of rocked on for a little while and you feel like, man, you kind of need to, to, to get everybody's attention once again. That, that's kind of the idea here. This is the central tenet of Judaism recited daily by devout Jews. And the call to hear implies that the following words are very important and must be obeyed. This is not optional. What we are to hear is, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. It could also be translated, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. It means that Yahweh and only Yahweh is the true and living God, and he alone is to be the object of our worship. As the Lord proclaims in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. He is the one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons as implied in several places in the Old Testament and certainly made explicit in the New Testament. So the only way to know this triune God is by his revelation of himself to us through his word. He is unchangeable in his attributes and perfect in all of his ways. We don't learn about him through philosophy or mystical experiences or subjective feelings, but through his written word, which Moses emphasizes here. If you back up into verse number one of this sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, you will see words like commandment and statutes and judgments. And then again in verse number six, these words. 
these words. So we are not only to know this almighty God, but we are also to love him, to love him. Again, Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38, identified loving God as the great and foremost commandment in scripture. Not enough to know about God, simply through his word even, although that is foundational, you cannot uh, fully love a God that you don't know. Also, you must love him with your total being. With your total being. This means entering into a personal relationship with God through saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be your number one priority. Personally knowing and loving God is the foundation for generational discipleship. And then to love God fervently, you must walk with him with reality on the heart level. On the heart level. This is very important. Moses again says here in in, in this sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your what? On your heart. So the idea of heart and soul and might, and Jesus adds there in Matthew chapter 22, uh, the mind is a total person love for God. A total person love for God. Yeah, I find it interesting that uh, when uh, two young people are developing a relationship, and as that relationship grows, then there comes a time when you would express your love for the other, right? I, I don't know that I would have ever felt comfortable at any point in my relationship with my wife saying to her, you know, babe, I think I love you about 50% now. You think she'd be okay with that? I'm getting there. <laughs> Next week, I'm hoping to be up to 70%, right? No, she wants my full love, all of my love, all of the affection that I can give to her. And that's the same idea that we see here. Every area of our being must be consumed with and subservient to this great quest of loving God supremely. A personal relationship with God is essential. Now, how important is this? Well, let me remind you that Jesus condemned the Pharisees of his day because although they were very religious and although they honored God with their lips, their hearts were far from him. We find that in Mark's gospel chapter 7. They kept their religious rituals, but they lacked a love relationship with God. And if we're not careful, I believe it's easy for us to fall into going through similar motions uh, of being Christians outwardly, but all the while, we're not loving God on the heart level. We're really just modern-day Pharisees. So here's how that applies to raising our children in the Lord. Religiosity won't do. It won't cut it. You've got to be walking with God with reality on the heart level. And if you're not progressively showing and demonstrating and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, as described for us in Galatians chapter 5, toward your family, but then you're laying a bunch of legalistic rules on your kids so that they will look like good Christians to the rest of the church or even to the the world, your kids will most likely eventually rebel against you and against the Lord. They will grow up to be good little Pharisees. On the other hand, if your kids see you walking with God in reality, with God daily, loving his word, applying it to your life, growing in the fruit of the spirit, your love for God will be infectious. And I hesitate to use that word. 
right now. But this is a good infection, okay? This is something that we want to see in our homes and our families. We want to see our kids become infected with our love for God, our love for his word. That's the foundation of raising godly generations. It is the foundation of generational discipleship. One of the things I want you to understand in this is, again, we're not just talking about good moral teaching. It'd be easy enough for Christian parents today to say, well, you know, I want to teach my kids good biblical principles. That's great. I want to teach them to be truthful. I want to teach them to be hardworking because if I teach them in those things, then they will find success in the work world. True enough. If I teach them to, to, to follow these biblical principles and I, I, I just kind of give them these nuggets from God's word along the way, then they'll be successful in their chosen career path and they'll be financially successful and all of those things. But if all the while you are not laying for them a spiritual foundation upon the, which those truths are borne out, then you've missed the point. You've missed the point. And so the second thing that we see here, and this is where this transition takes place. This is where we get down to the nitty gritty, we might say. Dr. J. Vernon McGee used to say, this is where the rubber meets the road. Teach your children diligently. Teach your children diligently. That's, that's, that's the language that's used here in our text. Teach diligently in Hebrew means literally to sharpen or to whet. You ever heard the term whet their appetite? Okay, you want to whet their appetite? You want to create in them an appetite for the things of God? Your teaching should penetrate your child deeply so that it has an effect on him. You come at it from every angle and, and in every situation, and the idea is making God's commandments central in your life so that you're thinking about them all the time. It's an overflow of your own walk with God. If God's word is on your heart continually, then you will be talking about it consistently with your kids, applying it to real life situations. Now, I want you to pick up on the language used here. Verse number, verse number seven, let's just go back there and revisit verses seven through nine. It says, you shall teach them diligently. Notice whose responsibility it is. Okay, it doesn't say anything about hiring it out. Okay. Now, I do believe we're to partner together in this, the church and the family, the church and the parents. But you ultimately are responsible to teach them diligently to your children diligently. That word's important. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So verse number seven assumes that you do in fact sit down in your house and talk with your family. That's kind of a novel concept in our culture today, right? That you would actually sit down in your house and have a conversation with your family. This is great stuff, isn't it? I mean, look at this. And I would simply say this. If you are so busy as a family that you rarely have time for actual conversations, you need to change your schedules. You need to somehow rearrange your priorities, because if your kids grew up and all they can remember is all the stuff you took them in and had them involved in and all those such things, but they can never remember really having any meaningful conversations with you, then you've missed the point. You've missed the point. 
It also means that if you're counting on the church to train your children for you, you're missing the point. This is you engaging with your kids, engaging with your grandkids at home and in various contexts. Now, let me pause for a moment and say this. Uh, I don't think you'll find this uh, surprising, most of you. We Protestants have shied away from the word catechism. And in many ways, we have then as a result neglected the practice of catechism. Let me remind you of what the word catechism means. This is an actual dictionary definition. It is a summary of the principles of Christian religion in the form of questions and answers used for the instruction of Christians. It is a series of fixed questions, answers, or precepts used for instruction in other situations. And so one of the things that we desire to do as a church, leadership in our church, through our kids' ministry, our student ministries, is to provide you resources to come alongside you in this effort of generational discipleship. And so one of the things that I would recommend to you, and I'm not going to ask you to pull this up on your phone right now, but I do want you to, to just get a sense of this, is New City Catechism. Okay, if you have a mobile device, you can download it for free. New City Catechism. I'm going to give you just a sampling of what this looks like. What it is, it's based upon, as the definition states, a series of questions and answers to help your kids better understand key doctrinal truths. Okay, very simply. And so this is broken down into three parts. Uh, the first part is God, creation, and fall, and law. Okay, so the first question is this. What is our only hope in life and death? And the cool thing about this app is that there is a kind of a child's version that gives uh, more condensed, a little more simple uh, answers to some of these questions. And then there's the, the full uh, kind of adult version, you might say. So I've got it on the kids' version right now. Question number one, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is this, that we are not our own, but belong to God. Okay, and then with this, this is kind of cool, there are songs that go along with this. I'm going I'm to maybe throw our tech guys off a little bit right now, but uh, I, I want you to hear just a sampling of one of those songs that goes along with that question. Listen carefully. So you get the idea, and it goes on, and then there's the full kids choir that joins in and everything. It's really engaging. Can, can you picture yourself maybe, maybe playing that while you drive down the road? Or maybe in the morning when your kid's getting ready for school? So then you begin to see how you, and some of you I know are already doing this, how you can capture, recapture some of those other hours that have at this point been set aside for other things, like finding that other shoe or whatever else, and they can at least be listening to some of these kind of things. And it's being reinforced. That is catechism. Now, again, if, if that word or that concept scares you or maybe freaks you out a little bit, okay, let, let me just clue you in for a moment. Because we use the concept of catechism in a lot of areas of life. I'll give you an example. I came home the other day, and my nine-year-old daughter, Addie, was standing in front of our TV in the living room. And she was dancing and singing to what really amounted to a, a, like a music video. 
Okay, but I listened carefully, and you know what she was dancing to, and you know what she was singing? Two times two is four. Two times four is eight. Two times five is ten. Two times ten is twenty. I mean, so what is that? That's a form of catechism. That's exactly what that is. We have tools and means to help kids memorize their multiplication tables. Now, are we saying that, that that's all they're going to need as it relates to math and, and their future? No. But that's pretty foundational, isn't it? I mean, I mean, let's face it. We've all seen some adults who are still in their mid-40s. They're kind of two times four. I mean, they're still, they, they, because they never really memorized their multiplication tables. It's basic. Hey, the same thing is true in coaching small kids. It's always a good day when you bring your basketball to church. Uh, this one even says NBA on it. Um, remember, remember the NBA back when? It, anyway, um, so I was thinking about this the other day. This year, I've, I've uh, this is like the third year now that uh, Matt Cooper and I have coached uh, little girls basketball. It's been good for my sanctification. I feel like I'm more like Jesus, hopefully, as a result of that experience. But uh, one of the things that I noticed, even in one of our practices not long ago, is how many times I kept saying the same things over and over and over again. I mean, when it comes time to teach somebody how to shoot, you're going to teach them, it's going to be the same thing over and over and over again. And then if you watch players as they advance in their basketball career, you will see them doing those very same things. But what you'll notice is they then do it, it's just like second nature. But you've got to reinforce those very basics when they first start out. And so one of my finest moments this last basketball season was not after a win, it was actually after a loss, or during a loss, but I was, of course, on the bench. One of the girls was sitting beside me on the bench, and you know what she yelled out from the bench to her teammates? You play defense with your feet. You know where she got that? From me. (laughs) She had heard me say that time after time after time after time, in practice and during games, and at least she was listening enough that she had picked it up and knew that that was something I need to yell at my teammates from the bench, okay? That is a form of catechism. Okay, now I'm not suggesting that you do this in a legalistic sort of way or anything like that. I'm just saying you've got to do this intentionally. Uh, And so this is one way that we need to be more vigilant uh, in in doing these things. Uh, Now I want you to notice here, Moses is using a figure of speech here that is called a merism. What he does is he contrasts sitting and walking Okay, being at rest and being active. And then he contrasts lying down and getting up, giving us this picture of nighttime and daytime, or morning and evening. In other words, all the time. That, that's really what he's fundamentally saying. So when you walk by the way implies teaching your kids when you go places together. It may be a trip to the grocery store or on a family outing, but you can point out God's beauty through his creation. When you lie down, points to bedtime naturally. And it's a great opportunity to talk with your children about their concerns and pray with them. And I know many of you would say some of your best conversations with your kids and even your grandkids is at bedtime. They have questions and concerns and and things of that nature. When you rise up, of course, implies that mornings are another opportunity to teach your children. Teach them how to start the day off right with the Lord. And again, your example teaches a lot. And this is where some of you are just going to have to bow up a little bit. You may not be a morning person. 
Okay, but you're going to have to, if your kids are consistently grumpy in the morning, show them, tell them how they can begin the day with a cheerful, cheerful heart focused on God's blessings. Answer your kids' questions about God and about the Christian life. You'll notice that if you continue down here in this sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, down to verses 20 and 25, the fathers were to explain the great deliverance which God brought about for his people, the exodus. The, the Old Testament exodus. It's a picture of God's redemption at the cross in the New Testament. And so you may have to do a little study. You may have to dig a little bit. And you may have to see these pictures of, of redemption and of salvation and of the gospel even in some of those Old Testament stories. And so don't stop short by just telling your kids good stories. As they get older and as they mature and they can grasp you know, the little bit deeper truths and concepts, then you begin to, to tie these things together for them. That is being intentional in discipling your children. Dads, explain great truths of salvation to your kids. Don't respond to your kids' questions by simply saying, that's just what we believe, or because I said so. Your child needs to understand the why behind the things, as, especially as they grow older. Now, trust me, there are going to be times you don't know the answer, that you just don't know the answer. Uh, one time I was having a conversation with Matt, our oldest, when he was just a little guy, and um, he was asking me a couple of pretty difficult questions, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to deflect this nonsense, um, and so I'm going to ask him a question that he can't answer. And so I said, Matt, what color is time? I'm feeling pretty good about myself with that question. And right away, he goes, red. I'm like, really? Time is red. And he goes, yeah, Dad, look at the clock right over there. Those numbers are red. I'm like, you little, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's going to be times where they're going to ask you some questions maybe that just blow your mind. You know what? An example of Christ-likeness in those situations is to set your pride aside for a moment and maybe acknowledge that you don't know all the answers. As much as you want, might want to put on this persona of you're Superman and you know, you, 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 you know it all, you don't. And it's okay to acknowledge that to your kids. But I hope that you will say to them, I don't really know the answer to that or I don't know fully how to explain that to you, but I'm going to do some study and I'm going to find out. That is true discipleship. Explain that God's commands for us are for our good. God gives many negative commands in his word, right? But not because he is some kind of heavenly killjoy. His commands are, are, are like the rules of the road. And you can explain it this way. These rules aren't to take our fun away. They're to keep us safe. And so if you run red lights and you drive on the wrong side of the road, eventually you're going to get hurt and you're going to hurt others. And so godly parents present God's truth and his commandments in this wholesome, helpful, explanatory sort of way. You could say to your kids, I know that you might think it's fun to play in the road with no discretion whatsoever, but the reason that I tell you you can't do that is because I love you, and I don't want you to get hit by a car. It's for your good. So you want your kids to see both from your life and from your teaching that the Bible is a book that applies to every aspect of life. It tells us how to think, but more than that, it tells us how to act. 
and how to act upon what we know to be true about God, what we know to be true about the world that he has created, and from the most private to the most public details of our lives. Teach that to your kids and always be open to their questions. To raise godly generations, love God fervently, and teach your children diligently. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.